0: Welcome to episode 41 of the Revival Podcast for Millennial Women. Well, recently I have actually done quite a few episodes that are the bigger picture critiques and comments on patriarchy and uh, evangelical culture, complementarian theology and culture. So if you're more looking for big picture kind of stuff, feel free to check out the past few episodes if that's your area of interest. I will be interspersing more microscopic views of things along with more like macro views of things. So I might switch off week to week or even month to month as as I uh, feel inspired by the Holy Spirit. Another resource for you is to check out episode 28 if you actually just need some definitions of some of the terms I mentioned, like complementarian, patriarchy, later I'll talk about egalitarian. If you need just definitions of those and a baseline understanding, go check out episode 28. But today I want to just focus in, zero in, get into the nitty gritty of the context of the Greco-Roman world at the time when Paul was writing. This information is actually really foundational for us to be able to understand the audience of the New Testament letters and how they would have heard Paul's letters, how they would have understood them, and how radical Paul's words really were when he was discussing even the household codes, you know, the ones about wives submitting and husbands loving their wives, that kind of thing. And today, I'm not really going to go into all the nuances of every passage that discusses the household codes. I'm merely trying to provide us with some context to help shed light on those passages so that we can better understand them. I always feel weird saying this, but I also just want to note that I was a history major in college, and I did teach high school history for many years, And actually one, what I call unlucky year, where I taught middle school, which was a wild experience. But let me tell you, in all that time of teaching and and researching and reading, Greco-Roman history at this time period was just not in the realm of history that I taught or learned about in the courses that I took. And so I've had to spend actually quite a bit of time reading and learning from historians and scholars about this time period. I've mostly been looking at articles and books And today's episode is the result of that research because I've really had to dig deep. I didn't know a lot of the stuff that I know now, but I want to share my learning. And I also have even more to learn. I'm sure more and more stuff will come up. And as I continue to learn, I hope to continue to update us on this podcast because I don't pretend to be the possessor of all knowledge by any means. We are never done learning. So today we're going to talk about the context of the Greco-Roman households, which were called the paterfamilias. And I also want to note before we begin that slavery and also sexual exploitation is going to be mentioned in this episode. I'm not going to go on about it at length or in any kind of depth, but it is going to be mentioned. So if that's something that you do not want to listen to, I just wanted to give you a quick warning about that. All right, let's get started. Hey, millennial, welcome to the revival podcast for millennial women, where you can come as you are, where you are in your faith journey. We're here to explore who God is and what He has to say through studying His words in the Bible. Hi, I'm Catherine Elise, and each week it's my intention to take important, relevant topics and examine them with you through the lens of God's Word and the good news of Jesus. If you're here for an honest look at Scripture, beyond pulling random verses out of context, open to creative ways to connect with the ultimate Creator, and hoping for some good, old-fashioned, critical thinking about living out your faith, you're in the right place. I mean, as a former history teacher, you know I'm not going to let us off the hook with surface-level application. So grab a cup of coffee, put on your favorite sweats, and download that Bible app. Let's get started with today's topic. A quick note before we begin. Learning context is good Bible study. So, When you go through this journey of researching gender roles in the church, of researching really anything in the Bible, if someone discourages you from looking into the context of Paul's world because you're questioning gender roles, I want to encourage you really quick don't let them get to you. It is good practice and good study that most pastors support in all areas of the Bible. So there's nothing weird or bad about doing this with the household codes. Understanding context really does help us understand what scripture says. It's not some weird way that we're trying to circumvent the words of the Bible or, or not do a plain reading of scripture or whatever it is that people say. It's really good Bible study to understand the culture in which this was written to. And that's just a good historical skill too. You can't really understand a text if you don't really understand the audience. Let's go ahead and begin with a little bit of background. Paul's context was the ancient Greco-Roman world. The Roman Empire was actually in control during this time, and Paul was a Roman citizen. It is recorded a few different places, especially in the book of Acts, and he uses that to his advantage at different times. So Paul had to navigate balancing the rules and the culture of the Roman Empire, which is in so much power at this time, with also trying to help people understand how to live in a Christian way within that culture because it's not really about the culture wars. It's really about trying to spread the mission and trying to build up the Christians, right? And not only that, but I also just want a quick note about culture in general. Yes, the Roman Empire as a whole had a culture, but also there's different subcultures and issues that Paul had to navigate as well, which can account for why there's some directions that are given to certain churches in some of his letters and not given to other churches. In some of his letters, right? Because they had different issues, different cultures, different things that they're dealing with. And one way to think about this is in our cultural context of right now in the United States, well, the United States itself actually does have a culture, right? As Americans, there is an American culture, but also there are subcultures within that, right? I'm from California. So my example is that there is a very different culture in the Central Valley of California. They have a different set of values, beliefs, practices, et cetera, than let's say the San Francisco Bay Area of California, right? They have different cultures, different feels, different ways of living their lives, different sets of beliefs, right? All within American culture, but just different subcultures within that. So this is the kind of complexity that the early church is being established within and they're trying to be established. They're trying to build the church. They're trying to spread the gospel. They're trying to build up and encourage believers. Keep that in mind when you're reading scripture and when you're reading Paul. And what I want to bring us to right now is the home. And don't forget that homes are different now than they were then. For example, for Jewish people during this time period, hospitality was a very strong cultural value. And homes were actually pretty different than how we envision them today. Business could happen in homes. The early church happened in homes. There were both public and private matters going on within the home. The homes were structured differently, where they had more public settings within the home and also more more private settings within the home. So it was kind of like a semi-public place. And I learned this from Dr. Bethany Roberts-Gavinta, I hope I pronounced that right, who has a wonderful series of lectures on Phoebe and also the cultural context of Phoebe's time that I'll link in the show notes if you want to listen. They are totally great. I highly recommend them. So being in control of the home or having something like an event or meeting happen in the home, it wasn't a private affair in the way that we think of things today. There was a public element of it a lot of the times. And this really brings us to the paterfamilias. Now I have also seen this word pronounced like four or five different ways, (laughs) so forgive me if I switch between them or if I don't pronounce it the way you've heard. But the paterfamilias, it was not women who had legal control over the home at this time. Legal control. It was the men and they were called the paterfamilias. And I've read a lot about them from different sources, but I really like how PBS, they had a history article on it. I really like how they put it. So I want to read that description to you. And remember that they're not giving this history in context of trying to understand the Bible. They were just giving this history as its own lesson. So I find that kind of interesting too. This is their explanation of it. So I'm going to read it at length and then I'll let you know when it's done. Okay, quote, ancient Rome was a man's world. In politics, society, and the family, men held both the power and the purse strings. They even decided whether a baby would live or die. As a side note, there's like more to this article about it, but it was really sad and off topic, so I didn't include it. <clears throat> but back to the article. Families were dominated by men. At the head of Roman family life was the oldest living male, called the Potter Familias, or father of the family, He looked after the family's business affairs and property and could perform religious rites on their behalf. The Potter Familias had absolute rule over his household and children. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or even kill them. Only the Potter Familias could own property, Whatever their age, until the father died, his sons only received an allowance or peculium to manage their own households. Sons were important because Romans put a lot of value on continuing the family name. If a father had no sons, then he could adopt one, often a nephew, to make sure that the family line would not die out. Roman women usually married in the early teenage years, while men waited until they were in their mid-twenties. As a result, the mater familias, mother of the family, was usually much younger than her husband. As was common in Roman society, while men held the formal power, women exerted influence behind the scenes. It was acceptable that the mater familias was in charge of managing the household. In the upper classes, she was also expected to assist her husband's career by behaving with modesty, grace, and dignity. End quote. So the domestic household, it was practically managed on a daily basis by the wives on a practical level, but it was the husband who had ultimate control. And that was the law. Typically, he would leave the household to his wife so that she could run it. She could manage the slaves and tell them how to how she wanted things to go. And while that happened, he devoted himself more to public life. And marriages at this time, remember, were not often for love. They were usually for advantage, a gain of some type, um, economics, whatever. I also want to point out that we should notice that the women's appearance mattered a lot. And by that, I mean how she was perceived. This reflected either honor or shame for her husband and his household. And honor and shame were a really important thing in this cultural setting. So this could also include her physical appearance. It could include the way she acted, spoke, carried herself. All of that reflected on her husband. I really like the picture that Gordon Fee paints for us in his article, The Cultural Context of Ephesians 5, 18 through 6, 9. And I'm going to quote him. It's a short quote here. Quote, in this kind of household, the idea that men and women might be equal partners in marriage simply did not exist. Evidence for this can be seen in meals, which in all cultures serve as the great equalizer. In the Greek world, a woman scarcely ever joined her husband and his friends at meals. If she did, she did not recline at table. Only the courtesans did that. But she sat on a bench at the end, and she was expected to leave after eating, when the conversation took a more public turn. End quote. Another thing to consider is that, is that the paterfamilias were often seen as the priests of their home. And this was pointed out to me by Dr. Dorothy A. Lee in her book, The Ministry of Women in the New Testament. And she talks about how these men actually determined the religion of the family. They got to decide the religion of their homes. And a lot of times they even led their family in that way. So there is actually quite a bit of boldness in 1 Peter 3. When Peter tells wives to win over their husbands for Christianity. Because it was supposed to be the men who were in charge of the religion. From 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence. Of your lives. He's not only encouraging women to to win their husbands over to Christianity and actually do something that was not usually done by wives, but also he completely flips on his head where wives get their value. If we continue reading after verse two, we have verses three and four, and it says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And yes, there is actually more after that verse that we need to examine at a later time, but I'm not going to get into it today. For now, I just want to note that there is nothing gender-specific in calling women to have gentle and quiet spirits. I know that in part bothers us. I know it bothers us sometimes to read this set of verses in first Peter and be like, well, why is he calling out women for the way that they're dressing? Well, it it's not our culture that he's looking at. It's their culture and how they were getting their identity and value at that time and how culture viewed their identity and value and really affirming them and saying, no, it's actually, it comes from Christ. Your value is not in how you're reflecting on your husband. Your value is coming from something else. And again, having a gentle and quiet spirit is never something that's just applied to women. Jesus describes himself as being lowly and gentle. And my friends, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit for all believers. For all believers. Not specific to women. Here it is being used to affirm women. Tell them where their true value comes from. Their true value comes from how God has made them, their inner self, the part that reflects God's image, right? But look, gentleness is, like I said, a fruit of the spirit for all believers. And when it comes to quietness, you might be looking at that and thinking, oh, well, here's another support for women have to be quiet. Okay, well, I would just say to that, that we also need to keep in mind James, the book of James. James tells us that the tongue can be pretty wicked. It says all kinds of things that get us into trouble. It leads us into all kinds of sin. And in fact, in James chapter 1, starting in verse 19, it says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves righteous and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In that, I see that James is wisely encouraging us to be quiet, slow to speak, to listen, to learn, to observe. That's for all believers. Switching gears here. Another aspect I want us to consider is the plight of female slaves. I do want to note that slavery in this culture did look different than it did later in the United States. That's not what slavery looked like during this time period. People could actually be sold into slavery and they could be bought out of it. Sometimes they could buy themselves out of it. Sometimes it was more temporary. And that's not by any means to justify slavery in any way. I'm just merely stating that it did look different because our cultural context might give us a certain image of what slavery looks like. But the slavery at this time period was structured differently. However, both male and female slaves, while they were in slavery, were at the total mercy, the total mercy of the Potter familias. In her book, Paul and Gender, Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall, who I've mentioned many times, she describes that female slaves were often sexually exploited by the Potter familias. And this was considered acceptable. This was considered legal within the law. And I point this out to simply say, this is the level of control that husbands had over their families, that husbands had over their households, that husbands had over their slaves, male and female. It was a very vulnerable and scary position to be in. So within this context of the Potter familias, of the husbands having this total authority and legal control over their entire home without anyone being able to challenge it. This is the context we're talking about. So there is really nothing new or surprising about a comment from Paul in Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18 for wives to submit to their husbands. This is not groundbreaking at the time. It's not revolutionary. It's normal. But what is radical and what is mind-blowing And what is revolutionary in this cultural context are these verses. Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. There are not qualifications given there. It is not unless you are a husband. This is radical stuff. Also radical is Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. And look, I know a lot of you have heard these verses before. Some of you might be okay hearing them. Some of you might feel a little bit of, or like cringiness about hearing them, or some of you might have an emotional reaction to these verses in the way that they've been used against you. What I would ask you in this moment, when I read them to you is to just take a second And rid yourself of what you've been told about these verses just for a minute. And just think about a wife in that household listening to these verses. A woman who might have expected nothing from her husband. No love. No admiration. Perhaps abuse of different kinds. Perhaps just simply indifference. Perhaps unkindness? How would she hear these words? Starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, Quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, End quote. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You know, Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall, she has a very interesting point in her book, and she says that phrases like washing with water and without stain or wrinkle, they sound a lot like doing laundry. I had never thought of this before, but they really do. And that was the work at the time of women and slaves. These are some radical statements within the culture of this time. Men setting aside their legal power and authority as paterfamilias to love and to serve their wives, not the other way around, as husbands at the time would have expected. This idea that they're going to submit to one another, it is never said that this doesn't apply to husbands too. This idea that men, husbands, will love and serve their wives is revolutionary at this time period. And isn't it beautiful that Christ's example for all of us was to empty himself and to come to the earth to serve. And some of you at this moment (laughs) might be cringing, thinking I'm going to go into terms like servant leadership or something like that. But I would just say to that, that we are all called to this type of service. This is not exclusive to men and it's not exclusive to husbands. We are all to serve the way that Christ served people. To that point, I want us to observe Philippians chapter two. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there's this term that Margaret Moscow uses. Mutual submission. Wives submitting to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. Husbands emptying themselves of their unearned inborn power to serve and submit to their wives and to others. The idea that all Christians lay themselves down to serve, to love, And to submit to one another. Considering other people as more important than themselves. What if this is what we read when we read those verses? Something to keep in mind. So wrapping up here. There is a lot more that we could say about the cultural context of this time. We could get into the patronage system. We could get into the prevalent polytheistic religions. We could get into... More details about how slavery worked. We could get more into children and their obedience to families. Hopefully, these are topics for future episodes and we will get to them at another time, but I'm already running long here, so we're not going to get to them today. But if there's a particular topic or question that you want me to cover, please let me know. You can text me if you know me, or you can email me at podcastercatherine at gmail.com. And again, I don't know everything. I'm not pretending that I know everything. And I'm not pretending that I have perfect knowledge by any means, but I am trying to do my best to do the research and to understand to the best of the ability that I have. And I would love to answer any questions that you have. Ultimately, what I hope you walk away from this episode with is this. Context matters. And we should put ourselves in the shoes of Paul's audience. The words that I used to cringe at when I used to read the Bible, suddenly they've become less hard for me to read. And eventually over time, I've actually come to the place where I don't even see male headship at all anymore in those verses. And I know I didn't even address the verses that talk about men being the head. Again, a topic for a future episode. But I do want to say that feeling of reading scripture and not seeing that is it's pretty incredible. It feels pretty liberating actually. And it feels like it really does make sense. So thank you for joining me today. If you learned something from this episode, if there's something that you think would be helpful for someone else in your life to know, I ask that you would just share this episode with someone that you know, you can text it to them, you could post it in your social media, whatever you choose to do would be helpful for me, and I would greatly, deeply appreciate it. It is my joy and honor to share this research with you, and I pray that God uses it in a mighty way. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, thank you so much that you are here with us, that you want us to think, that you want us to examine and study and learn more, that you value the minds and thoughts of men and women alike. Thank you that you flip things on their heads. The wisdom of the world is not the same as your wisdom. And your wisdom is so beyond compare. It is everything. You know everything. And I pray that you would continue to guide us and enlighten us and open our hearts and minds to whatever it is you have for us. That we might learn your ways. And that over time, your ways would become our ways and we would value you above the words of men and women and anyone else, just you. Love you, Lord. Thank you for this platform. And I pray that you would be present with the women who are listening. In Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for joining. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Revival Podcast for Millennial Women. If you got something meaningful out of today's episode, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple podcasts. These reviews help more women find the show and it helps grow our community. Plus these reviews help me see how God is using this podcast and that my friends blesses me greatly. Oh, and be sure to check out the show notes for more ways to connect with me. See you next time.